as you can see in your bulletin, today's scripture reading comes from uh, three gospel accounts. Um, but we will just be reading from the account of Matthew, and we'll refer to Mark and Luke in the sermon. Hear God's word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting on a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I pray that in your grace you will speak through Andrew, and your holy word may be planted in our hearts through this sermon, so that those who know you may be edified, and those who do not yet know you may be renewed all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. What a beautiful backdrop we have today with the freshly fallen snow. Great to have Roger on the team and uh, among us, so my welcome to him as well. I'm going to start this morning with a little parent corner. Uh, You can judge me if you like, Uh, but uh, when Josiah was little, he was, uh, I don't know, maybe two. Uh, somewhere in there. We were living in St. Louis, and I decided to take him to a St. Louis Blues hockey game. Uh, hockey is an interesting sport to go watch. Uh, you have your, uh, a very unique clientele there, and we were in the cheap seats. Uh, and in the cheap seats, the, the beer is flowing, and, and people's emotions are, you know, right there. And so... Um, being from Michigan, I decided to dress Josiah in a red wing sweater uh, and bring him into this pit. And uh, so we walked, you know, in already getting boos and jeers because uh, they were playing the Red Wings that night. And uh, uh, we walked all the way up to our seats and I began to pray for the people around me. <laughs> and I began to pray for Josiah. Uh, that he would not be unduly traumatized by this moment. He was a marked man. Uh, He clearly stood out as somebody who was different uh, from the surrounding crowd, 
and they let him know that. They were his judge. They would like to be his executioner. Uh, it was, it was a moment, like I said, judge me if you want. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, who some of you know from the silver screen, uh, recently said, to be young now, to be young whenever, is to be intensely judged. I can't imagine what it's like to grow up uh, without the onslaught of social media. He's saying this as he's playing a character from the 80s and, and just, you know, getting into that scene where there wasn't the social media like there is now. It was a relief to play these characters, wrestling with their own internal dilemma, absent the ability to go Reddit or Twitter or Instagram, TikTok, whatever, and figure out where you fit in. This is a, a constant thing, whether you are young whether you are old, uh, wherever we are, we are always in the process of judging and being judged. We are always drawing these lines, deciding where we are, where the people we come into contact with. We do it based on the, the clothes they wear, the sports teams they, uh, they, they cheer for, the music that they like, the, uh, the words that they... I mean, there's just so many ways in which we're constantly putting people into categories, into boxes, where we are uh, judging and being judged. This morning, as we're continuing our series, looking at folks who are flocking to Jesus and, and what they encounter there, what they see, what they feel, what they receive, uh, how does Jesus uh, engage with them, we, we come to a person, his name is Matthew, or sometimes he's called Levi, who spent his life being judged, put into a box. Uh, what happens now when he comes and he meets Jesus? How, how does Jesus interact with him? How, uh, how is he uh, received? How is he changed? These are some of the questions um, that we are going to deal with this morning. I want to walk through it in a couple of different ways. First of all, we'll, we'll look at just how Matthew is perceived by the community around him. Uh, he is known as a sinner. We'll talk about that. Then we'll look at the call that Jesus puts in his life. And then finally, we'll look at the response of joy uh, that comes in uh, that comes from Matthew. So Matthew is a person who is a marked man. He's wearing a red wing sweater in the Blues Auditorium. Uh, why is that? Well, there, there's two reasons. Uh, one is his, his role within society. We're told that he is a tax collector. Um, as you know, the, the Jewish region where they are here was under Roman imperial rule. Uh, Rome had this massive, you know, there were so many good things about Rome. We talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We talk about their judicial system. We talk about uh, building the roads and the aqueducts and, you know, all of these different things. But all of that costs money. Uh, it costs money to build the roads, it costs money to build the aqueducts, it costs money to keep the peace, it costs money to expand the empire, uh, the Roman war machine. All of these things took money, and, and where did Rome get that money? 
You got it. Uh, they, they got it from the people that they conquered, the people that they subjugated. They got it from, in this case, the Israelites. How did they get that money? Well, they got that money by enforcing taxes. Uh, taxes, not necessarily on income probably like we think about it, but more in terms of like customs, uh, excise taxes. You know, if you were to transport goods or you were doing a business, you, you had to pay a tax, uh, how, you know, as you move things along. So, you know, Matthew as a tax collector is set up near Capernaum, a lot of fishing going on. Uh, he was probably well known among the fishermen for having to collect the tax as they uh, went about their business, so on and so forth. Uh, but these were people, these tax collectors, who were part of the subjugated people, but they were working for the Romans. And so you can understand that people didn't feel very good about them. Uh, because A, they were taking this money, and they were taking the money in order to keep the Roman war machine going. It wasn't a very pleasant thing. And then they were giving this money to their fellow men, their fellow countrymen, who they felt like were being traitorous towards them, who had, they were turncoats. They had, they had, uh, they were now in the service of the Romans, not by compulsion, but by choice because it was fairly lucrative. You know, Matthew as a tax collector had a booth set in a particular way, and, and let's say that he owed the Romans uh, a thousand denarii. I have no idea if that is to scale or anything, but you get the point. Uh, he owed them a thousand denarii a week. Um, now, they weren't watching over him to see how he collected things. They just wanted their thousand denarii. So if he could collect uh, 1,200 denarii or 1,500 denarii, he only had to pay the Romans 1,000, and the rest of it was him. He got to keep that. That built his personal wealth. So not only did was he not liked, was he marked because he was working for the Romans, but he was also stealing from his countrymen, his brothers, his sisters, these folks who he should have been on their side, but he was exploiting them, he was using them for his own personal gain. So he was not very well liked. Tax collectors, publicans, uh, they, were, they were universally despised, they were jeered, they were marked, they were, they were not very popular. Secondly, uh, oftentimes they went together, not only were they marked in this sort of uh, business or just neighborly sort of way, but also with regards to the law. Uh, this is the Jewish uh, ceremonial law, the, the Mosaic law that a good Jew sought to follow. Uh, oftentimes these folks were, were not very intent on following that law. And we know that just because of this exchange that we have here in all three of the synoptic gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke identifies them as tax collectors and sinners. Now, we have to think about what we hear when we hear the word sinner and what is meant here. What we often hear is we hear somebody who is uh, morally reprehensive, Somebody who is maybe a monster. You know, I don't, I don't know what you think about when you think about a sinner, but, but those are the types of things that, that we tend to think about. 
What is meant here, though, is somebody who doesn't follow all of the religious laws, uh, who doesn't follow the cleanliness laws, who doesn't follow uh, the, the laws in terms of how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day, uh, these types of things. So in one sense, you might come to this gathering and you see people who are kind of, you know, good citizens. They're, they're working with the state. They, they're well-to-do. They have everything together on the outside, but it's with respect to these Jewish laws that they are marked then as sinners, as deviants, as the ones who, who miss the mark when it comes to the law. So, in two ways, in two ways, uh, Matthew, Levi, is, is a marked man, both in his affiliation with Rome, how it plays out in the economic lives of his Israel, Israelite brothers and sisters, but then also with regards to his keeping of the law. And Jesus says, uh, as he interacts in and around the issue of Matthew, especially after he calls him and he goes to this party at Matthew's house and he's eating there, Jesus says, it is exactly these marked people that I have come to call. It is exactly these people who are the outcasts, the rejects of society. It's these people who don't fit our ordinary boxes. These are the people that I have come to call. He, he says this in response to a question from, it, it says, you know, if you read carefully there, it doesn't say the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the scribes of the Pharisees, it says in Matthew. And, and that's to point out, it's, it's the real law keepers you know, among the Pharisees. It's the ones who are, are marking, writing down all of the laws. And, and they're saying, you know, Jesus, don't, don't you see? Don't you see that he's out of bounds? And Jesus says, listen, this is not only permissible, but this is my purpose. This is what I came to do. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It, it's the sick. I, I came to call these type of people. I came to bring my life into contact with theirs in order that they might receive the cleanliness of the gospel. I think it's good for us to stop and think here for a moment. You know, Jesus says, I, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Um, you know, when Jesus is saying this, he, he's not saying... He doesn't want righteous people in the kingdom. Uh, but what he's saying is, I have not come to call those who consider themselves righteous, who are considered righteous by a human standard, but I've come to call those who, who have no other hope, who are marked outside of the community outside of the kingdom, those are the ones that I am seeking to draw in. And when Jesus points this out, what he does is he basically takes an electron microscope and he shines it into our own heart. Because we recognize that we are so much like these scribes of the Pharisees. Uh, we, we live constantly drawing lines, uh, putting them here and there, and making sure that we are on the right side of the lines uh, and those that we come into contact with 
are outside of the lines. One writer puts it this way. He says, our daily inclination is to draw a line between good and evil and then to place ourselves on the good side of the line. Now, listen carefully. He says, we do this unconsciously when we simply follow the rules. Uh, we do this somewhat consciously when someone accuses us of incompetence or malfeasance. We do this consciously when we are meeting someone new or when we try to look for good in other people. We do this nervously when we try to keep guilt from rising up into awareness and disturbing us with depressing thoughts. But most viciously, we do this when we exact harm on someone through gossip, violence, war, or even genocide. Do you see, do you see what he's saying? And I, I think it's so true. Our, our hearts are always drawing these lines. You know, we're, we're dividing between the righteous and the sinners. We're dividing between those who are following the rules, doing it correctly, you know, however we would define correctly, and those who are out of line. Sometimes we do it consciously, sometimes we do it unconsciously, sometimes we do it maliciously, sometimes we do it just in order to, because we feel so bad about ourselves. You know, we, we do it nervously. We want to have some assurance that we are on the right side of the line. He goes on to say, but what the gospel reveals to us is very surprising. It's even counterintuitive. When we draw a line between good and evil, and then subconsciously, consciously, nervously, viciously, whatever, we place ourselves on the good side of the line, the gospel and a story just like this one helps us to see that God is on the other side of the line. God is on the evil side of the line. Now, how can that be? Is that really true? Well, yes, it is. When we pursue what we deem to be good, uh, we often find that God uh, sides with those who has become victimized by our pursuit. When we pursue what we believe is justice, God sides with those who suffer from our personal pursuit of justice. When we stomp on the accelerator of our own virtuous achievements, a poisonous gas comes out of our exhaust pipe that suffocates those that we are leaving behind. What we are blind to is that our own pursuit of self-justification victimizes others, and our gracious God sides with these victims. To say it another way, our virtues are just as deadly as our vices, and God, among others, suffers from our virtues. The passage like this is helping us understand that Jesus is not looking for good people to make just a little bit better. Jesus is looking for people who clearly identify themselves as sinners. People who clearly identify themselves as the needy, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Uh, that, that's the, the picture that is given to us here. And it helps us to understand just how 
just how, uh, you know, how devious our hearts are and, and how they can get twisted around so easily in our everyday living where we're putting people in these lines, uh, judging them, judging ourselves uh, more, uh, more generously. Jack Miller, uh, our friend, we've quoted him before. He, he shares a little story just about how this worked out in his life. He says, when New Life Church was young, there was a man in the church that I, as a pastor, felt called to go correct. Uh, I had really worked up a full head of steam for this person, and I thought, well, I might as well pray a little bit before I go. <laughs> Always a good idea. So I got down to do some praying about this man, and I described him to the Lord. I went over all of his sins, uh, and I did it very well. <laughs> so the Lord would know who he really was. I laid out all this brother's sins. And then I had the most mysterious thing happen to me. I began to see an image of my own face in front of me. And I thought, what in the world is this? And it began to dawn on me. I was describing myself. I was really shocked. The Spirit wouldn't let me go just then because an unchanged man trying to tell another man how to change. So I repented. And it really made a difference when I talked to him. I still went, but I had cooled off a good deal when I began to realize that I had a worse version of the malady than he had. And this is really what is being invited to us here. Jesus is, you know, this is the talk of, of new wine and new wineskins. You, you can't take old wine or new wine and put it in old wineskins because when it goes through the fermentation process, it will burst the wineskins. Jesus is bringing a whole new paradigm into that Jewish world at that time. They were thinking it's all about obeying the law. It's all about being scrupulous. It's all about being righteous. But Jesus is saying, no, that's the way the old law worked. In the old system, if you ate with somebody who was considered unclean, and this happened to Jesus a lot, whether it was uh, the woman who was associated with the sexual sins who came in, or whether it's these tax collectors, these people who aren't... Um, you know, aren't following the law. The question is always, why, Jesus, are you eating with these people? Uh, because if you ate with people who were contaminated, the belief was that the contamination would come on you and that you would be contaminated. But Jesus says, no, I'm doing something very different here. What I am doing, I am becoming contaminated in order that they might become righteous. I am going to take their contamination all the way to the very pits of hell by means of the cross in order that when I eat with them, my righteousness is what flows to them. This is a very intimate thing to, to eat with someone, and that's part of why the Jews had this law. You know, they, they realized that you were drawing close, and they realized what they called the danger that was in that. But Jesus is, is pouring new wine. And he's saying, I am undoing all of that old law so that when I eat with them, I may become contaminated, but my power is such, my love is such, my justice is such 
that I will take that, I will pay the penalty, and they will receive righteousness. It's going to flow the other way. And that's the story that, that we're given here with regards to these sinners. And that's also the invitation. So we can understand then when, when Matthew meets Jesus, he's meeting somebody who's very different than anything that he's ever heard. Uh, Matthew was sitting at the tax booth. We're, we're told a couple of different things here that I think are kind of interesting. He's, uh, these are the first couple verses of each of the synoptic passages. Uh, Jesus was passing by. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. The Mark passage is, is instructive. He went out again beside the sea. This is Jesus. And all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi or Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, did Matthew know Jesus before this moment? So again, like we saw last week, we're, we're not given every detail. The, the likelihood is Matthew knew about Jesus. All of these things were going on. People were talking. You know, Matthew wasn't off in the corner. He was actually in the center where he could collect his taxes. He, he surely knew something about Jesus. But one of the things that is interesting is that he wasn't getting up from his booth. You know, in, in Mark we're told that all of the crowd was coming to Jesus. Did you notice that? Uh, and, and it took Jesus going to Matthew in order for this relationship to initiate. I love that picture because I think a lot of us are, are like Matthew. I don't know why he wasn't getting up from his booth. We're not told that. We're, we're not told if, if he was uninterested in following Jesus. You know, everybody else was going Jesus' way. Matthew wasn't going. Did he not care? Was he not interested? Was he just occupied by his business? You know, all the stuff that he had going on. You guys know about stuff, right? Uh, stuff that you have going on, and it's, it wasn't allowing him to break free to, to go to Jesus. Was he ashamed? Did he feel like if he went to Jesus, it would just be like every other time that he went to a rabbi, that he would be told that he was worthless, that he would be reminded that he was out of step, that he was filthy, that he was unclean, that he was an outcast. I don't know why he didn't get up from his tax booth. I don't know why some of us don't pursue following Jesus. But what I love is that that is not the end of it. You know, Jesus saw him. And Jesus sees us. And Jesus comes and he presents himself to us in front of our tax booth and he says come will you follow me will you follow me this this new wine master this one who who breaks all the stereotypes this one who uh, offers a way that is through death to life you know it's interesting here 
Sometimes when we look at these parallel accounts, you look at what's different. So we see that in, in Mark, you know, all the crowd coming to him. Matthew sitting there helps us to realize the picture a little bit. But then you also look uh, at what's the same. And in every single one of these accounts, we have this, and he rose and followed him, and he rose and followed him, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. The exact same uh, construction in every account. Why is that? Well, if you look back in Matthew chapter 9, so just before, you see that Matthew is healing a paralytic. A and in this in this story, uh, he, he heals the paralytic. He talks about his ability or his right to forgive sins. Uh, and then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then the text says, he rose and he went home. Uh, he rose and he went home. And this, this word rise is a resurrection word. And I think the picture that these gospel writers want us to see is that no matter where we are, whatever is, is, uh, is delaying us, whatever is hurting us, whether it is a physical malady that is separating us from the community, whether it is a spiritual malady that Matthew has that has made him an outcast in the community, you may be experiencing death. But Jesus has come to give you life. His death, his, his journey through the grave, you know, if you think about uh, uh, Tolkien terms, you know, Lord of the Rings, his journey walking the paths of the dead gives him a right, gives him uh, a power to call people from death into life. And they rose and they followed him. Have you experienced that? Everybody. You know, I, I really, just a minute here, want to talk to our young people. Uh, you know, we have this communicants class informational meeting today, and that's incidentally for parents and young people. It's not just for parents. Everybody can come to that who is interested in it. But, but this is a big passion of us as a church. I mean, we, we want to see everybody come to Christ, but we take vows every time a child is baptized uh, that, that we will nurture and we will shepherd our young people to come to a point where they, uh, they look back and they see the promises that were made to them in baptism, and then they own them for their own. You, you make a, a public profession of faith, or if you've never been baptized, you, you receive the sacrament of baptism that says, yes, you know, not only my parents, but I belong to the Lord. And, and this is the call that's on every one of us. You know, there, there has to be an answer to that. Matthew, like we saw with Peter and Andrew and James and John last week, was decisive. They left their nets you know, here it says, leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed him. You know, just like you can't be a little bit pregnant, you can't be a little bit Christian. You know, Christianity isn't something that you just add on to what you have already going on. You, you, you make a 
you, you find yourself and you identify yourself as a Jesus follower. And then that means that you, you leave everything and you begin to follow him. And so, I, you know, I really want our young people to think about that, college students. If you've never made that public profession of faith in a Bible-believing church, you know, the, it, it's not only a call, but it's also a warm invitation to, to find your place with this new wine master, this one who is painting a whole different story. The last thing that we note is just how joyful this story is. Uh, Dan Dink, some of you know, just uh, came out with a book uh, talking about joy. I think he did a Sunday school class on that not too long ago. He has a chapter in his book about how Jesus just uh, brings joy into people's life. You know, when, when, when you have an encounter with Jesus, no matter how you came into it, you know, if you came into it marked as a sinner, you went out a changed person. And we see that here with Matthew, don't we? I love Luke account, Luke's account where he says, um, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. Each of the Matthew and Mark accounts say many tax collectors, many sinners. And Matthew, he couldn't keep this to himself. He had to share it. Now, I don't know if this was his practice. You know, we know Matthew liked his money. It was what he was about. He was making money. He was becoming very lucrative in the process. Was he miserly before? I don't know. Did he, you know, did he frequent parties? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what his life was like. Um, but here we see when he has this encounter with Jesus, he says, I have got to get you around my friends. I, I have got to get you around other people that are just as marked, just as outcast as I am. I have got to get them around you so that they can see the beauty, so that they can see the wonder of, of what it means to be touched by the good news of the gospel. I wonder if we have that kind of freedom that kind of joy. You know, you, you see it with, with Matthew. It's, you know, we, Pilgrim's Progress, we have that great picture of, of his burden rolling off his back when he, he comes to the cross and, and the burden rolls into the empty tomb and he, he is able to stand and, and there's just a change that comes over him. And, and I wonder if we have that kind of freedom in our lives where we say, come, you know, it's like the woman at the well, come, meet a man who told me everything. He saw me all the way to the bottom, and he still loved me, and he still cares about me, and he's inviting me, he's inviting you to lose your spot, you know, lose that thing that marks you, and to find freedom. Now, two things about this. Uh, one, I think sometimes as a church, you know, we, we really focus on, especially when people become Christians, like, okay, you can't hang out with those old people anymore. You've got to get a new set of friends. You've got to, it's okay. I mean, obviously, you know, once we come into the kingdom, we find that our desires have changed and, you know, we, people who we maybe normally wouldn't have jived with, we find ourselves jiving with now in, in a different way. Uh, but, 
there's something here about Matthew that says, you know, these people that you are around on an everyday basis, the people who work with you, the people who you hang out with, you spend time with, bring them to Jesus. Uh, who, who is that in your life? You know, you live in a neighborhood, you work at an office, you go to a school. Um, there are a lot of people there who, who don't know Jesus as this new wine master. Bring them to Jesus. Now, that's not an excuse, and this is secondly, to, you know, just keep partying indiscriminately. You know, we want to get the boat in the water, but we don't want to get water in the boat. Uh, we, we, want to, we want to be able to go, you know, Jesus prays it this way. He says, I pray that you wouldn't take them out of the world, speaking of his disciples, but that they would be in the world, yet not of the world. And, and so that's our challenge here with regards to this. But the point is, bring people to Jesus. Allow them to see a God who blows their expectations. One of my favorite stories of this is, uh, and I've told it here before, but I think it's been four or five years. So bear with me if you've heard it before. It's a great story. Tony Campolo, uh, some of you will know that name. He was speaking at a conference in Honolulu. Honolulu's time difference is very uh, is quite different than Philadelphia, which is where he is from. And so he found himself awake at 2.30 in the morning, you know, couldn't sleep, starts wandering around, finds the only place open is this old diner. He goes in, gets a coffee and a donut. Next thing he knows, uh, the door opens, and all of the prostitutes from the city uh, start coming into the diner, and he finds himself in the middle of this. He overhears a conversation between two ladies who are talking about, you know, one, it's her birthday yesterday. The other one sort of snarkily replies, you know, what do you want me to do, throw you a party? Uh, there's just not a lot of love and grace that's being exhibited back and forth, and that gives him an idea. And so they leave, and, and he calls the diner operator, whose name happens to be Harry, over, and he says, you know, that, that girl over there, does she come in here every night? Uh, and he says, oh, Agnes, yeah, absolutely. She comes in here every night. Campolo says, I, I have an idea. Let's throw her a birthday party tomorrow night. Uh, I'll get here, you know, she comes in at 3.30, I'll get here at 2.30, we'll decorate the place, uh, I'll bring a cake, Harry said, nope, cake is my thing, this is a great idea, we'll make food, we'll get the cake, all of that. So next night comes, Campolo gets back to the diner, decorates it, crepe paper, everything, the word gets around, and every person, you know, uh, of that occupation is in the diner that night when Agnes walks in. Happy birthday, they say to Agnes. They sing to her, and, and she is literally so flummoxed, so stunned, so taken aback that she about passes out, and uh, she just can't even put two words together, and, and she says, nobody has ever given me a party. And, and I, I've never had a cake. You know, do, do we have to eat it? I mean, and Harry said, no, I don't have to eat it. Take it home if you want. So she says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take it home. She takes the cake home. 
So here's Campolo in the diner with all of these people. And he said, I, I couldn't think of anything else to say. So I said, how about we pray for Agnes? Okay. And so he begins to lead them in a prayer. He prays for Agnes. He prays for blessing on her lives. Uh, he, he prays that she would come to know the Lord. And at the end of that, uh, Harry comes over to him, and he's a little bit upset. He's like, I, I didn't know you were a preacher. You know, what, what are you doing here? You know, what, what is this all about? What kind of God do you serve, or what kind of, of Christian, or what kind of church do you belong to? That's what it is. And in one of those, uh, one of those moments when just the right words came, Campolo answered, he says, I belong to a church uh, who throws parties for prostitutes at 2.30 in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. Because if that kind of church existed, I would belong to it. And this is the story that Jesus is giving us for Matthew. It's marked people, labeled, outcasts, rejected, They've brought near by the gospel, invited to Jesus. He's the master of the new wine, whose death, descent into hell, has given him the power to see them, to give them new life, to surprise them in ways they never expected to be surprised. Whether they were looking for him or not, whether it's the first time or the thousandth, Jesus is there. He's suddenly standing over your tax booth, and he's saying, will you come and follow me? Will you pray? Father, we thank you for this word, a word that is both penetrating in terms of what it shows us about ourselves, uh, but also freeing in what it shows us about you and about your finished work and about the power uh, that you have to exercise grace in our lives. Help us to see it. Help us to respond. Whether we are old or whether we are young, uh, may it be the most real thing to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.